I just got back from my annual vacation to Florida, otherwise known as Akron South. And while I was there, I usually have a couple of things that I want to accomplish. You know, at the parish, it seems like you just get really started on something and then somebody needs something, you get distracted. You go to, I go down there and there's just a lot of time to get things done in one chunk. And some of the stuff that I do is for the parish and some of it is stuff for myself. And one of the things on the list from the latter list of activities was to read Mark Twain's book about Joan of Arc. I was ordained on the 30th of May, and that's the feast of St. Joan of Arc, and so my class took her as our patroness. And the thing is, I, I knew terribly little about her. So on my agenda was to get to know her by reading Joan of Arc by Mark Twain. Turns out she's quite an inspirational and interesting person. The one thing that amazed me is how her whole story began. So picture Joan. She's in her mid-teens, right? A slight figure, illiterate, poor, somewhat shy from a backwater town from which she never traveled. She has no connections, no influence, no power, no resources. Yet, one day, a message comes to her sent from God that she was to go to the king of France and tell him to give her an army so she, should, so she could go and free France from the English. It'd be a little bit like me telling you, I want you to go to the president and knock on his door and tell him to give you an army, right? She didn't do it out of false bravery built on naivete. Rather, she knew how ridiculous the whole thing was. But, but because she believed God sent her, she went and did it. And miraculously, she gets before the king and tells him what she needs to do, what he needs to do. You will give me an army to free France. And the king does exactly what you expect he would do. He laughs at her, along with all the attendants in the room. And Joan does something remarkable. She doesn't run out of the room crying out of embarrassment. She doesn't get angry and red-faced and start screaming at the king. Rather, she stands there calmly and she says, I will return tomorrow and the next day and the next day until you give me my army. Which, through a lot of miraculous things, happens. And of course, uh, eventually she gets the army and frees France. Now, this is what I believe is meant by if someone slaps you on the cheek, offer him the other one as well. It's not passivity. It's not cowardice. And I don't know why people read that into this particular passage, uh, you turn and offer the other cheek. Actually, this is amazing bravery. If you stand before someone and they literally or metaphorically slap you, you have basically three choices. You can flee, you can attack, or you can stand your ground. If you flee, I will admit sometimes it's a wise thing to do, but if you do, there is not going to be a change or a resolution. The game is over and you've lost. And I think that's why the church has found herself mired in so much scandal right now. The perpetrators were able to silence their victims. Therefore, no justice was done and the victims were doubly victimized. 
The attack method should be used very sparingly because it's a scorched ground tactic. It doesn't give anybody a way out, right? It doesn't give the enemy the chance to go, oh, ah, maybe I was wrong. Or worse yet, maybe you go, oh, wait a minute. Maybe I'm the one that was wrong. I need to apologize. It's, dif- it's a difficult tactic from which to recover from anybody. Someone has to lose. And what does that say about the future? Do you want to deal with someone like that again in the future? No. It doesn't allow the possibility for someone to say, oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, let's work on a compromise. This is, it seems to me, where we are politically as a nation today. The right and the left are so far apart that all they can do is attack each other. And neither side can give in a little bit or cooperate without someone declaring them either a traitor or saying, see, we won, we won. But to stand your ground You're like a rock in a river. On the one hand, it means I'm here to stay. I'm not going to be made invisible. You are going to contend with me, right? Like Joan of Arc. And on the other hand, it means I'm here to work with you in spite of you, but I'm not here to destroy you. I'm not here to dam the river. I'm here to work for our mutual benefit. You know, I I think of John Paul II when he was still Pope. And he had just declared that the, uh, the discussion about whether women should be allowed to become priests or not was a closed thing. And then he comes to the United States and he was going to do the Stations of the Cross in the big stadium. I was in the seminary at this time. And we're sitting there watching it on TV. And the big controversial thing at the time, there was a, a lady playing Jesus carrying the cross as they did the Stations of the Cross and all the commentators, oh, what's Pope John Paul II going to do? Is he going to be upset? You know, what did he do? Did he stomp his feet and complain and march out? No. Did he say, fine, I'm not going to do it? No. He prayed. He prayed the Stations of the Cross. He put his head down and did what he always did. This is why Jesus tells us also to pray for our enemies. It's a lot easier to hate, but hate divides and leaves little room for healing. It's far more difficult to heal. But if we pray for our enemies, not leave them off the hook, but pray for them, there's a greater chance of virtue which unites will be established and unity will grow, which quite honestly is probably why most people don't want to pray for their enemies. Who knows, they might convert and then we will have to like them. Or worse, maybe I'll discover that I am wrong and have to acquiesce, but it is a lot easier to do if we've not already tried to destroy somebody. Jesus gives us today a remedy to conflict, to use when we have something good or true, or beautiful to defend, and want to increase the chance and opportunity of others being won over. There's one more thing I want to add. Another thing that I like to do on my vacations is I go for a long walk in the morning, about four miles, and I listen to podcasts, Catholic, mostly Catholic podcasts that I need to catch up on. And this one last one I was listening to was talking about things for hope for the church right now, what's going on. And one of the things that they mentioned was lay movements, the lay movements in the church. You know, the uh, 
there's, a, there's always something to be scandal For 2,000 years, there's been something to be scandalized about in the church. And the church has three basic branches of, of what leads the way in holiness in every age. Sometimes it's the Pope, sometimes it's the Magisterium, sometimes it's the laity. One of these always rises to the top and is, lead, and is a leader, right? And right now, I believe it's the laity. And we see this great outbursting of lay movements going on, even in our own area and in our parish. I think of the uh, uh, the ETA project of the young adults in our area, or the Disciples of the Dying, or even if you look on TV, the Right to Life, what's going on there for the Right to Life March and all that. Even happened with the scandal, people standing up and saying, I will not go away, you need to deal with it. These are great examples of people who neither run nor attack, but stand in the fray of the storm like Joan of Arc and do what they are called to do, to be a force of goodness and truth and beauty with which the church, our city, and our culture must cope.